great God and Father in heaven, this is indeed our prayer, even as we lift our voices in song to you tonight, that you who sent your Son into this world to be the Savior of your people Israel, known from eternity long ago, you, O oh God, who have transformed suffering and even the experience of death itself for your people and made it but a pathway into everlasting glory, we pray that you would come near to be with us here tonight, to bless us and to help us and to encourage us by the means of grace. Lord, that through song and prayer, through Christian fellowship and the teaching of your word, your spirit would work powerfully within our hearts to strengthen faith, to deepen hope, to increase our love and joy in your Son. We thank you for all of the blessings of providence that you've given to us, for the ways that you've cared for us in the beginning of this week. We are thankful, O oh Lord, that in this season of Advent we can meditate in special ways upon the incarnation of Christ Jesus our Lord. And we pray, O oh God, that you would apply his coming and his work and his promises always to our hearts and to our souls. We ask your blessing upon this church, O oh God, that as a congregation we would be faithful and fruitful, that we would love one another, that we would be patient with one another and in the circumstances of suffering that you call us unto, and that you would lead us in triumph, O oh God, that we would be salt and light and leaven in this community and indeed even to other parts of the world. We pray your blessing upon our households, that you would bless the marriages in this church, that you would bless all of the children. Oh God, that our children and our children's children would excel us in faith and in your service, and that you would be pleased to build up your promises of covenant, multi-generational mercy and grace, even in the families of this congregation. Bless us tonight as we open your word. Give us eyes to see and hearts to believe and hands and feet ready and willing to run in the path of your commandments. Bless us, we pray, in Jesus our Savior's name. Amen. You may be seated. I want to start by reading two passages of Scripture, one from the New Testament, one from the Old. Revelation chapter 19 will be the first one that I read from. Revelation chapter 19, I'm going to read verses 1 through 9. The second passage, if you want to put a finger there, is going to be from Psalm 119, where I'll be reading verses 65 to 68. So Psalm 119 will be the second passage, but first hear this portion of God's Word from Revelation chapter 19, beginning at verse 1. After these things I looked, uh, after these things I heard, a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia! Salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God, for true and righteous are His judgments, because He has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication, and He has avenged on her the blood of His servants shed, shed by her. Again they said, Alleluia, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who sat on the throne, saying, Amen, Alleluia. Then a voice came from the throne, saying, Praise our God, all you His servants, and those who fear Him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. 
Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. And then Psalm 119, beginning at verse 65, And reading down to verse 68. You have dealt well with your servant, O Yahweh, according to your word. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. Thus far God's word. Now, what I want you to notice in those two passages, both of which are familiar to you, we've read them many times before in Revelation 19, even just this past Lord's Day. Uh, In both of those passages, you see the people of God celebrating the judgments of God. In the first passage, in Revelation chapter 19, God has poured out his wrath upon the persecutor. He has avenged the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs that was shed unjustly. He has vindicated his church. He has brought salvation and deliverance to them. And heaven's uh, chorus, heaven's uh, assembly sings God's praises and say, True and righteous are God's judgments. Judgment day is a good thing. But you have something similar in Psalm 119. And here it's not the persecutors that are being judged, but rather it is the servant of God that has been judged. He has gone through a time of affliction. And he says that God has taught him well, has dealt fairly, justly, righteously with him. You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord. Verse 67, that includes his servant's affliction. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now, as a result of that, in the aftermath of that, I keep your word. And part of this affliction, or or part of God's well-dealing with his servant, is this affliction, is this suffering that God has brought into his life. So there is the wrath of God against the enemies of God, and there is also the fatherly judgments of God, the hard providences guided by God's love that are turned against the servants of God. So tonight what I want to do is I want to just spend a little bit of time reflecting with you on God's saving judgment. We have talked about this theme many, many different times in many different sermons and in in, in many different ways. But one of the things I was reflecting upon recently is the fact that we had not had a lesson that was just devoted to kind of comprehensively outlining this theme as we see it developing in Scripture. And as far as I know, we haven't done any teaching at all on the practical implications of this theme for how we think about our own experience of suffering and sanctification. So that's what I want to do with you tonight. This relationship between God's judgment and and the church's salvation is crucial to understanding the story of Scripture. You cannot understand redemptive history unless you begin to perceive, whether by this name or not, but, but you begin to perceive this relationship between judgment and salvation. God saves His people and the world through judgment. And it's not only redemptive history that is kind of unlocked with this theme, it is also the gospel of Jesus Christ itself. That if you don't understand this theme of salvation through judgment, then you won't understand properly or at least comprehensively the gospel of Christ. Uh, Jim Hamilton in his book on this, on this theme, God's glory in salvation through judgment, said this, quote, Everyone who gets saved is saved through judgment. 
All who flee to Christ and confess that He is Lord and that God raised Him from the dead do so because they realize their need for a Savior. They realize their need for a Savior because they have become convinced that God is holy, that they are sinful, and that God will judge. In a sense, they feel the force of God's condemning justice. They sense the weight of the wrath that remains upon them. And they recognize that Jesus is their only hope. Thus, historically, in Christ on the cross, and existentially, in their own experience of the wrath of God that makes them feel their need for Christ, believers are saved through judgment. But of course, Hamilton says that in the introduction to a fairly large work of biblical theology, and then he begins to unpack it chapter by chapter by chapter and, and say, that's not even the half of it. Yes, preeminently in the cross of Jesus Christ, we see God saving his people through judgment. And personally, existentially, as he says, we experience salvation through that judgment being applied to us in various ways. But even to say it that way is not to adequately plumb the depths of this topic. So tonight we're not going to plumb the depths, but we're at least going to kind of comprehensively summarize this theme. I want you to be able to recognize it when you see it in Scripture. I want you to understand why we believe it is a pervasive uh, motif in Scripture, that it's an organizing principle for redemptive history. And then I want to apply it tonight in ways that, as far as I know, we haven't done so far to our personal experience of salvation and suffering. So let's start by just thinking about God's saving judgment in redemptive history. And I've broken this out in three different ways here in the first subsection. The shadows of Old Testament narratives all looking forward to what we see ultimately substantially in the cross of Jesus Christ. I've given you three different ways in which these shadows appear in the Old Testament and that is globally, nationally, and personally. Most of these I'm not going to uh, read the passages associated, but some of them I will, and primarily uh, I'm going to be looking at the New Testament passages that help us interpret these examples correctly. So think about just in the fall and the curse. First of all, what do you have when man falls into sin, rebels against God, and brings a curse upon all of creation? You have God's judgment against creation and against his image bearer in hope of salvation. That is how Paul interprets this event in Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 20. Creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself will also be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. The curse is not God changing his mind about creation. The, the curse is not God abandoning his plan to usher in everlasting glory. The curse is the means to that end. The curse is actually God saying creation was good, nay, very good. It has now been corrupted by sin. I will remove that corruption, but in order to do so, sin must be exceedingly sinful. You must see the evil of sin, the weight of guilt the harm that has, been that, that has been brought into this world by rebellion. And so God puts a curse, a covenant curse, upon all of creation and humanity in hope of redemption, in hope of deliverance, in hope of salvation. That's the way that the New Testament teaches us to read the story of the fall. Think of another global example, the flood. The wicked are destroyed 
in a flood of judgment, the righteous, Noah and his family, are spared uh, on the ark as they are brought safely through the waters of judgment, a picture of baptism, Peter says, and the world that they step out into is a whole new world. The world is reborn, as it were, at that time. This is how Peter teaches us to think about this passage. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, he says that scoffers who scoff at the idea of a future judgment of this world, they willfully forget that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. What did God do? He destroyed the world. He destroyed the world. And he saved his people by means of that judgment. Noah and his family are saved from a human society that is so sinful that every thought and intention of man's heart is only evil continually. Now, I'm not reading the Old Testament references on your study guide. I, I, I should be right now, but I'm not. So it's up to you to look those up later on your own. But see if you can figure out why I gave you the references that I did. Because each of those Old Testament references are an indication of the optimistic, salvific, hopeful aspect of stories of judgment. I mean, how do you find any hope in the midst of God cursing creation? How do you find any hope in the midst of God expelling man and woman from the garden? How do you find any hope in God drowning the world, the entire world? Like, people are drowning. They've got water in their lungs. Like, bodies are floating. God kills everyone. How do you find hope in that? Well, read, read the Old Testament. Read those narratives and see how God remembers and God promises and God purposes to use that judgment to bring about the salvation of his people and of the world. There are also national examples of this on a kind of a smaller scale than the global. Sodom and Gomorrah, for example. You'll remember that Lot moves to Sodom, uh, eventually moves his family into the city. He has sons-in-law there, whether they are betrothed to his daughters who escape with him or, or married to other daughters that we don't know about. Uh, his wife uh, ap appears to have a, a great attachment, maybe because her children are there, but has a great attachment to the city of Sodom, and yet... Peter tells us that, that Lot was a righteous man who was tormented by the ungodliness all around. What does God do? God sends two angels to Lot's house in Sodom and says, God is going to destroy the city. You must flee. And when Lot uh, is, is, is kind of wasting time, procrastinating, not moving with sufficient urgency, the Bible says that the angels grabbed Lot's hands and th those of his wife and his children and pulled them out of the city, God being merciful to them. That's what it says. You could look it up. It's in Genesis chapter 19. But notice how Peter teaches us to understand this story in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 6. God turned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, made them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. This is God's wrath. This is the terror of God's judgment. This is a terrible picture. of it's, it's a really bad thing to be in the crosshairs as a rebel against this holy God. Our God is a consuming fire. But what did God also do in the very same event? Verse 7, He delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. And if all of this is the case, verse 9, here's the conclusion, 
The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. Peter says that's what you're supposed to understand from Genesis chapter 19. You're supposed to see God saving Lot. And not just saving him from burning up in the city, but saving him from the culture of that city. Saving him from temptation in that city. I mean, Lot's wife looks back. Lot's daughters, they still seem to have a lot of the Sodom culture in them when they flee the city. Lot is a righteous man. What does God do? God has mercy upon Lot and takes that righteous man out of that wicked place and then firebombs the cities of the plain. And as awful as that judgment seems to be, Peter says that's a picture of salvation. That's a picture of deliverance because that's what salvation means in Scripture. Another national example would be the Exodus. What does God do? He judges the nation of Egypt. In fact, he makes war against all of the gods of Egypt, as he says in Exodus chapter 12, verses 12 and 13. But in so doing, he saves his people Israel. He destroys Egypt's economy. He destroys their religion. He destroys the authority of their king. And then he destroys their army. He wrecks their labor force, takes them away, and, and, and never allows them to return. And in that devastation of Egypt, what is God doing? He's, he's actually working the greatest picture of salvation that we have prior to the cross of Jesus Christ. I mean, Jesus' death and resurrection is the greater exodus. Exodus, the first exodus, is the greatest work of salvation God has ever accomplished prior to the incarnation and passion of Jesus. What about personal examples in the Old Testament? There's a, like, there's a bunch that we could pick. I just gave you two as illustrations. This is not meant to be exhaustive. It's just meant to be illustrative so that then as you're reading the Bible, you can start finding all of these and say, wow, salvation through judgment, the book of Ruth. Salvation through judgment, the book of Esther. Salvation through judgment. Every story, you're going to find this theme over and over in various ways. Two examples from the life of David. What about David's great enemies in his life, namely Goliath and Saul? Right? Before he takes the throne, these are the two great enemies that he faces. He faces a lot of other enemies whose names we don't know. He kills a lot of people whose names we don't know. But Goliath and Saul, they stand out as the great enemies that David faced in this early period of his life. Well, in both cases, God gives uh, victory to David, vindicates David, in fact, through the death and judgment of those who stood against him. And you see that very clearly when David runs on the battlefield in 1 Samuel chapter 17 to face Goliath. What does he say? He says, I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, and it's going to be God who takes you down today and shows all of the people who are watching that he is God and you are not. Your gods are nothing, and your strength is nothing, and my God's about to make an example on your body. That's what he says. And similarly, if you go back to 1 Samuel chapter uh, 26, let me show you what he says on one of the two occasions he had opportunity to kill Saul. You remember Saul is hunting him in the wilderness, chapter 24, chapter 26. David is within reach of Saul, has the opportunity to kill him and escape and refrains from doing so righteously. Chapter 25 is the sandwich where David loses his temper and nearly commits murder and then is saved from, by, by the wise counsel of a godly woman named Abigail. So you pay attention to that structure. That's very important. But in chapter 26, uh, notice verse 22. After he spares Saul, he and Abishai leave the camp and then shout and confront Saul and the commander of his army, Abner. And, and this is what David says in verse 22. David answered and said, Here is the king's spear, which had been by the king's head. David has taken it. 
He's counted coup on his enemy. He says, here is the king's spear. Let one of the young men come over and get it. May Yahweh repay every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For Yahweh delivered you into my hand today, but I would not stretch out my hand against Yahweh's anointed. And indeed, as your life was valued much this day in my eyes, so let my life be valued much in the eyes of Yahweh, and let him deliver me out of all tribulation. Are you seeing these pictures? Salvation through judgment. Through tribulation, through suffering, through persecution, David is living as a fugitive, and God is going to bring salvation to David time and time again in the midst of all of that, and even doing so through uh, judgments that he wields against Goliath, and of course, at the end of Saul's life by the sword of the Philistines. Similarly, in David and Bathsheba's uh, episode of great sin and wickedness. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, if you just turn over there for a second, you'll remember that after Nathan the prophet confronts David with his sin, David confesses uh, his wickedness. Verse 7 begins Nathan's confrontation. 2 Samuel 12 verse 7, Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says Yahweh, God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of Yahweh to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with a sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife, and you have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says Yahweh, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the sun. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against Yahweh. And Nathan said to David, Yahweh also has put away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the, the enemies of Yahweh to blaspheme, the child also who is born to you shall surely die. Nathan confronts David, denounces his, his evil, pronounces judgment upon his house. David says, I've sinned, I repent. And Nathan says, you're forgiven. And so does that undo the curse that God said was going to come upon David's house? It doesn't. In fact, it starts that night. Nathan says, God's forgiven you, and the baby is going to die. That, that's what God's going to do. Now, hopefully you see that that child is a Christ child, right? And, and no, we're not suggesting that that child was born in a state of innocence and was able to provide substitutionary atonement by dying in David's place. But you do realize that David has committed multiple capital crimes here. And David was the one who earlier in the chapter says that the rich man who took the poor man's lamb ought to repay fourfold. And you do realize that four of David's sons die in the aftermath of this sin as a direct result of his sin. And the first one to die is the child that was conceived in adultery. That child is a picture of Christ. That child's the son of Adam, a sinner saved by the blood of Jesus, just like everybody else. But in this story, that child is receiving the death sentence that David deserves. You've committed murder. God's going to forgive you, but blood is going to be spilled, and it's going to be the child that's going to give the blood. It's going to be the child that stands in your place. And so God, God is saving David, but it's not without judgment. And it's not even just from judgment. Now, there's that aspect. When God saves us, he saves us from the 
eternal wrath of our sins. He saves us from the everlasting consequences of our guilt. But he's not saving David apart from judgment. He's saving David through judgment. And you could see that over and over and over in your Bible if you pay attention to it. Now, all of those are shadows. The substance of this theme is seen in the cross of Jesus Christ. It is the preeminent demonstration of salvation through judgment, the salvation of God's people and of the world through the punishment of the mediator, the Lamb of God who takes the sin of the world and takes it away, carries it away, like the sin offering in the Day of Atonement and the scapegoat who carries uh, that guilt into the wilderness. His substitutionary suffering is explicitly prophesied and foreshadowed as the penalty, as the judgment that will heal our stripes that will carry away our diseases, that will atone for our guilt. It's, it's, it's impossible to, to imagine how theologians read the Bible, read Isaiah 53, read Leviticus chapters 1 through, through 7, and say that there is no, no substitutionary atonement in the Old Testament. It's like, what are you reading? This is exactly what's going on. The lamb that has stood in the place of the worshiper as his throat is cut, as his blood is spilled, that lamb is now ultimately fulfilled in the suffering of Jesus who bore our sins in his own body on the tree. And he himself took our stripes and the penalty that we deserved. There is no salvation without that judgment at the cross. There is no reconciliation possible. God cannot overlook sin. He cannot ignore our sin. He ultimately has to atone for our sin. And it's Jesus who does that in his death and resurrection. Redeeming grace is ultimately made possible by the payment of a just penalty. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. The wages of sin is death. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That free gift is made possible by the fact that Jesus has stood in our place. And so as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so we are saved through judgment. We're saved through works, Jesus' works. Jesus fulfilling the requirements for our Uh, redemption. Now, we could say that's the substantive picture of salvation through judgment, but supremely, consummately, ultimately, we're going to see this in the last judgment of the world at Jesus' second coming and the resurrection of the last day. Go over in the New Testament to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 for a minute. Uh, This is my favorite uh, passage on the second coming, and I am convinced it's on the second coming. I know some people would say this is AD 70, but I, I, I don't think so. Um, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 6, Paul writing to suffering Christians in Thessalonica says this, It is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you, and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes in that day to be admired, to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. Now, whether you think this is AD 70 or it's the judgment of the, uh, on the last day doesn't really matter because, of course, it's true in either case. The Lord Jesus is revealed in wrath and he meets out justice to the evildoer. 
But notice how Paul characterizes that judgment. He says it's a comfort. It gives rest to the people of God. They admire the Lord and glorify Him on that day. You will not, you must not, wring your hands and say, oh, it's a terrible thing that God's going to judge the world. No, you're supposed to be like the saints in Revelation 19, saying, bring it, Lord. Bring that justice. Bring that salvation. We don't want our friends and loved ones who are outside of Christ to be lost. We pray for their repentance. We pray for their salvation. But what do we want the Lord to do? We want Him to save the world. The way He's going to do that, in part, is by saving the world from the presence of the ungodly. We don't want Him to allow injustice to go on indefinitely. We don't want Him to drag His feet. We don't want Him to overlook wickedness. We want to sing with the saints in heaven, true and righteous are His judgments. And those judgments are terrifying. They're absolutely terrifying. Notice verse 9. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. It's a destruction that never is completed. It's ongoing. It's forever. It's judgment. It's punishment. It's not just that they're annihilated and they cease to exist. It's that God's wrath is continually poured out. They are tormented in the presence of the Lamb, Revelation 14 says, night and day without rest. They are consigned to outer darkness. I want you to see that this is a really frightening picture. This is the way the Bible describes it, the lake of fire. But it's the same judgment that is said to be a rest and a comfort and a joy to the people of God. Not because people are lost, but because the world is saved. And because this is what deliverance looks like. The promise of Jesus' coming again is supposed to be something that we look forward to and hasten. Uh, Again, in 2 Peter chapter 3, here's another disputed passage. I know some think that it's 80-70 here as well. I think this is the second coming. But regardless, the attitude, the perspective, the disposition toward God's judgment is the same in either case. Verse 10 of 2 Peter 3, The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Notice, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to His promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells, Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, without spot and blameless. What kind of days do you look for and hasten, right? Well, when you're really young, it's your birthday, and it's Christmas, and it's, you know, whatever. Things like that. You look forward to and hasten the coming of the day of the Lord. Going back to school, maybe not one of those days that you're looking forward to and hastening, right? And as you're getting older, maybe it's not your birthday, right? You know, it, there, there may be days that you know are coming, but you're not hastening. You're, you're hoping that it's, it's going to be a little bit further, take a little bit longer than it actually otherwise might. This is a day we're supposed to be looking forward to and praying, Oh, Lord, come. The dead will be raised. The, the world will be delivered from the curse. And sin and death will be banished forever. So, all of that is... A, a, completely familiar to you, I realize, and I hope you don't feel like you wasted your time coming back for a review. But, but what we wanted to do there was to kind of give you an outline of this theme that we've made mention of so often so that you can understand how that works and can be equipped to see it in Scripture 
every time it appears. Now, what I want to do is think with you a little bit about kind of the personal implications and experience of this. First of all, just in our own salvation. The theme of salvation through judgment is connected to the major aspects of the Ordo Salutis. We talk about the Ordo Salutis. We even had a sermon series recently on this uh, where we think about regeneration, justification, sanctification. We could put adoption in there, uh, ultimately glorification. But in each of those aspects of the Ordo Salutis, you are seeing in one, to, to one extent or, or another, uh, this, this theme of God's saving judgment. Regeneration, for example, is the spiritual resurrection of the believer after the old man is crucified. God puts to death the old man who is walking in death, who is living in death, right? You were dead in your trespasses and sins. God made you alive. But the old man of sin had to be crucified. He had to be put to death. He had to be killed. We had to be united with Jesus in his death in order to be united with him in his resurrection. And that's our regeneration. Similarly, in justification, God declares us righteous on the basis of the judgment of Jesus. Because Jesus died for you, you are not under the condemnation of death any longer. God made him sin and a sin offering so that you might now be declared righteous in his sight. Sanctification, similarly, is this ongoing experience of daily dying to sin, put to death that which is earthly in you, the mortification of the flesh, so that daily we might rise to new life. We are being delivered, we're being saved through God judging our sinfulness. You see that, right? It's not just Jesus' judgment, but it's also the judgment of my own sinfulness. God is, is purging me, here and now, we've said that, you know, that the doctrine of purgatory, there is purgatory. You're, you're in it right now, right? It's not after you die, before you, uh, you know, ascend into heaven once you're fully purified. God's purifying you right here and right now. And he's judging your sinfulness and making you more like his son. And similarly, glorification. What is glorification going to involve? It's going to involve the, the eradication of our sinful nature and our mortality, and all of the remaining evils in this world. And that's what's necessary for us to experience the fullness of glorification. God has to bring judgment. So in many ways, salvation is driven along by God's judgments. And it's organized by God's judgments in every respect, historically as well as uh, personally, spiritually, and theologically. Now, if salvation comes through or by means of divine judgments then we can expect that to find some expression in our own experience as disciples. And I want to I just think with you aloud about this for a minute, okay? Abraham is called by God to leave his home, and he has many adventures in suffering. I mean, he, a lot of adventures in suffering. Abram has a really difficult life. And as a very old man, God says, take your son, your only son whom you love, and offer him as a sacrifice on Mount Moriah. Like, the, life's not getting easier for Abraham. It's getting harder. The more he trusts God, the more he faithfully serves God, the greater the challenges become. Like, good news, you finish that 10-mile run. Next time you can run 15. I mean, it's, maybe I wish I hadn't finished that run, Lord, because you just keep ratcheting up the pressure. Similarly, Job's devastation through attacks against his livestock, the tragedy of the death of his children, his own illness, and then the provocation of his wife and of his friends. And yet the Bible attributes this, or, 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 or attributes to this story as a picture of faith, a picture of suffering. Uh, the Hebrews writer 
and James as well are pointing to Abraham and Job as examples to us in suffering, to persevere through those judgments of God. Who is it that's bringing that judgment into those men's lives? It's not the devil. The devil can't lift a finger against Job unless and until Yahweh says that he's permitted to do so. Similarly, Hezekiah's near-death experience. Right? We, we talked about this recently in a, in a sermon in passing at least. Uh, God sends Isaiah the prophet to Hezekiah and says, put your house in order, you're going to die. Hezekiah turns his face to the wall, prays with weeping, and God turns Isaiah around in the courtyard of the, temp, of, of the palace and says, go back up and tell him he's got 15 more years. What is God doing? It's like he's playing games with Hezekiah. He's bringing judgments into Hezekiah's life to provoke more intense prayer. What about King Manasseh? Converted in prison after being captured by the Assyrians, uh, the, the catastrophe of, of being essentially defeated and deposed and then thrown into a dungeon and having the audacity to pray to God, and God not only delivers him from prison, but restores him to the throne. Sa salvation through judgment. Nebuchadnezzar is humbled by being humiliated. Paul is blinded en route to trusting in the Messiah. And then, given a thorn in the flesh, and you can look with me at this passage, I know it's familiar to you, but it's going to be an organizing uh, passage for the remainder of what we're going to say tonight. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7 Paul says, lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. So Satan is wanting Paul to be a more humble person, not to be exalted by the abundance of the visions that he's received, but to be a humble man and to trust. Is that, is that what you understand him to be saying there? No, Satan is wanting to torment Paul. And what's happened, apparently, is Satan has asked permission, just as he asked to sift Peter like wheat, just as he asked permission to sift Job and prove that he wasn't a true believer, he's made a similar request of Paul. You realize this happens multiple times in the Bible. And the Lord says, yes. The Lord says, you can stick that thorn all the way into him, but you can't kill him. And Paul is so miserable because of this thorn that he's begging God three times, please take it away. And the Lord says, no. No, it's a messenger of Satan. Why wouldn't God take it away? Because God has a purpose for it. So in the very same experience, Satan is trying to discourage Paul and, and the Lord is trying to edify Paul, to help him, to make him better. Salvation through judgment. Verse 8, concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore... Most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities. I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Salvation through judgment. Do you see that? Now think about this for a second. There are some blessings God cannot give to you if your hands are full of other things. There is this really strange comment in James chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. Uh, you, you do not have because you do not ask. And then he says you do not ask, or you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasure. So the problem is that you're not praying for blessings, and so God's not giving them to you. And when you do pray for blessings, you're praying, praying for the wrong reason, and so God's not going to give it to you. <laughs> but did you know that there are blessings that you could have if you had asked for it. But you're not going to get those blessings because you've never asked for them. Do you realize that? 
Now, that's not like some kind of charismatic health and wealth, you know, silliness. This is right there in your Bible. You do not have because you do not ask. You already saw this once tonight in the passages that we read, 2 Samuel chapter 12. What did Nathan say to David? David, I gave you everything, and if you'd wanted more, I would have given it to you. I'm not going to give you Uriah's wife, but I would have given you any number of other things. It's not as if God is getting stingy with David, and so he's driven to adultery. You do not have because you do not ask. But why don't we ask? Well, sometimes because we're occupied with other things. Do you suppose that Abram ever missed Ur? Or do you think that he just hated his homeland? Like, you know, hated all of his neighbors, hated whatever family he still had back there, right? Hated his favorite breakfast diner, you know, whatever it was, you know, traditional Sumerian cooking. Do you think that Job ever missed his older children? You remember Job had 10 children that were killed? And God later gives him 10 more children, so of course that just evens it out. He doesn't, he doesn't even think about the, the other ones anymore, right? I mean, is that how that works, right? Um, what, what about Paul? I, I think the thorn in the flesh is that his, he's losing his eyesight. I think there's compelling evidence of that in the New Testament. I've talked about why before. Um, do you think that Paul might have wished that he could see clearly anymore? Well, obviously, if that's the thorn in the flesh, he's begging God to, to relieve his suffering. These, none of these things were sinful. Do you realize? When we are thinking about salvation through judgment, a lot of times we're thinking about, well, God's judging the wicked, and God's judging the evil in my own heart and in my own life, and God's judging the, the wickedness in this world, and all that's true, but, but these are stories about God judging and purging some things in the lives of his people that aren't sinful at all. And yet God takes them away. God tells Abram, you can't live in her anymore. I'm not going to let you. You're not going to live in a house. You're going to live in a tent, and then you're going to die. And Paul, you're, you're not going to have good eyesight. I'm going to blind you on the road, and then progressively, through the rest of your adult life, your eyesight's going to fail. And eventually, you're not going to be able to tell who's who across the room. Like, that's how bad your eyesight's going to be. And, and Job, you're going to lose your children. And I'm going to give you more children, but, but you're always going to miss the, the kids that I took from you. That's what the Lord does in those stories and many others like them. How many blessings that God might give us would be impossible for him to give us unless the way had been cleared by some fatherly judgment? And you can think about your own life and you could probably identify some things. You say, well, you know, in the aftermath of this or that tragedy, God, God did some very gracious and merciful things and blessed us and helped us in these various ways. But do you realize that he couldn't have done that? if he had not taken you through that adversity, that he had to get some other things out of the way in your life, things that weren't necessarily bad, things that weren't necessarily sinful, but that in order to bring you to a certain place, he, he had to take you down a certain road. What if God takes away some things in order to give his children greater things? What if he calls us to walk through or to live with pain for the sake of a greater blessing? And of course, it's a rhetorical question. We know that's exactly what he does. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. We know that God works all things together for the good of those who love him, those who are the called according to his purpose. So we know, we know that already. If you're in pain, God means for you to be in pain. That doesn't, that doesn't mean that you can't try to get out of pain. It, it, maybe, maybe the pain is to prompt you to pray. Maybe the pain is to prompt you to go to the doctor. Maybe the pain is to prompt you to you know, do what you can. We see that in Scripture. But if you're in pain right now, it's because God wants you to be in pain. And if you suffer losses, it's because God appointed that. 
Like the devil kills Job's children, but he only does that because God lets him. And God lets him because God has a greater purpose for it. So let's think practically about four ways in which that idea might help us. First of all, in assessing world events. A lot of Christians are looking at the present state of Western civilization, and they are feeling various amounts of dismay, anger, and anxiety. And dismay is entirely appropriate, I think, in this case. Anger, probably, is righteous as a response to to the stupidity. Anxiety is always unnecessary, and it's never God-honoring. There, there is, you know, you could say, well, I'm just appropriately concerned, and there is an appropriate place for concern, but let's just be honest. Like, anxiety is always sinful. It's always a lack of trust in God. It, I mean, it's a forgivable sin. It's not the unpardonable sin. It's a sin that you need to repent of like every other sin in your life, but it is a sin, and we should just identify it as such. We should mourn over sin. We should hate evil. We should love justice. But we should also trust that God is sovereign and that he does whatever he pleases in heaven and on earth. Including right now. Including right now. With all of the wickedness that we see. And we're not arguing for passivity. We're not arguing that we should uh, accept this situation as a moral good. You're not supposed to call evil good or good evil. But you are supposed to recognize that when evil arises, God's got a purpose. God's still at work. This isn't, this isn't you know, outside of his plan. It's not outside of his control. What if the insanity and violence and societal suicide that we see in clown world right now is actually God's saving judgment? That'd be kind of cool, right? It wouldn't change our attitude about the wickedness that's involved. It wouldn't change our attitude about the harm that's being done to people. That, that's considerable. And maybe, in fact, America is going to be the next Egypt or Babylon or Rome, and she's going to fall. God doesn't need this country. He doesn't need any country. God's doing just fine on his own. But God's people will be delivered through whatever he has ordained here. And so we might be Augustine watching the city collapse. We might be Jeremiah watching the temple burn. But God's going to deliver his people because he saves his people through judgment. Judgment is not the end of the story. Glory always is. Always is. Secondly, enduring suffering. Salvation in Scripture does not mean escape from suffering. It never does. That's not what the word means. That's not the way that it's used in the Bible. But it always involves deliverance and sanctification through suffering, by means of suffering. In other words... Salvation transforms the experience of suffering so that now it's a tool in God's hand to bring you to the fuller state of salvation and deliverance that you otherwise could not have. Union with Christ, union in his death, union in his resurrection is what transforms this experience for us so that now, like James tells us, we can count it all joy when we fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of our faith produces patience or perseverance but let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete lacking nothing rejoice rejoice in tribulation count it a joyful thing when you suffer because you know God is at work within it Christ never calls us simply to grit our teeth and bear it he tells us to give thanks for it he tells us to give thanks in everything 
And so can we rejoice in pain? Can we give thanks to God for the thorns that we carry in our flesh? Can we celebrate God's goodness in our suffering? We're supposed to be able to do that. That's what the Spirit is at work within us to do. That's hard. That was hard for Paul. That was hard for Job. We don't do it well. Job has to repent of things that he says in the latter chapters of the book. Jeremiah has to repent of things that he says in the middle part of his book. We're going to have to repent of some bad attitudes. But, but we can know ultimately God is still at work in that pain and suffering. Third, our experience of sanctification. One of my mentors used to say that it is impossible to humiliate a truly humble man because he's already low. I don't like that particular point because I can be humiliated, which just means that I'm still a very proud man. But I want you to think about how we learn humility in this life. If you're praying for God to give you humility, you realize what you're actually praying for God to do? Like, are you sure you want that? Now, yes, you do want it. You should pray for it. Like, don't, don't think, well, I'm going to be the Christian that never prays for humility, so I'm never going to get humiliated. No, that's not how that works. Like, God's going to humble you anyway, right, whether you pray for it or not. So you might as well pray for it, right? You might as well have the, the you know, the spiritual wherewithal to say, okay, Lord, do with me what you're going to do anyway, whether I want you to or not, right? Because I kind of want you to, even if I don't want you to, right? Make me want you to do what you're going to do. Well, where do we learn humility, patience, contentment, long-suffering, forgiveness, and love for our enemies? Well, God brings circumstances into our lives to teach us all of those things. Do you think that you can receive any of those graces without the necessary context for receiving it? I mean, just think about it for a second. How, how would God make some, like, God's all-powerful, but he can't, like, he can't do what's impossible. He can't make a married bachelor. He can't make a square circle. He can't make a person long-suffering unless they suffer for a long time. He, he, can't, he can't make you love your enemies without having enemies to love. He can't make you a humble person without humbling you. And that's going to that's be an unpleasant experience, perhaps. What if we approached our sinful desires and temptations as episodes of God's saving judgments, right? You've heard the expression before, the more you bleed in training, the less you bleed on the battlefield. That kind of seems to be what Paul is thinking about when he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, I buffet my body, I discipline my body, right? I punch myself in the face, right, is the Greek verb there, right? I strike myself under the eye. I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest, after having preached to others, I should be disqualified. So Paul's getting up every day, and he's getting up for the fight. He's getting up for the battle with his own flesh. And he says, all right, this is an opportunity for me to gain strength by weakening myself. Just the same way in the gym, the same way out on the road, the same way in any kind of physical training and exertion, as as we are being tested and pushed beyond our limits and beat down and failing, we're actually doing that in order to get stronger and to succeed, and to survive, and to prevail. And what if we thought about our temptations that way? What if we thought about the uh, desires of our sinful flesh that way and said, okay, here we go. The Lord is calling me onto the battlefield again. He's putting me in the arena. He's giving me a sword to train with against my own flesh because God saves us through judgment. 
Fourth and finally, looking to the future, the future can seem frightening. You know, what's, what's going to happen? What if I lose my eyesight the way that Paul lost his? What if I lost the ability to speak? I've known preachers that had that happen to them. Do you know how terrifying that is to be a middle-aged male and to realize you might not be able to do the one thing that you've done your whole adult life, right? Like, what, what would I do then? What if I lose my mind? What if I lose my family, my strength, my health? Well, you could play that game forever, right? And just worry yourself into the grave. How many righteous people did God tell in Scripture, your life is going to be very hard and then you're going to die? I mean, that's, that's basically what he says to Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and Daniel. Like, you're going to serve me. You're going to preach to hard-headed people. None of them are going to listen to you. You're going to suffer a lot. And then eventually you're going to die. Like, it's not as if you're going to serve faithfully for 20 years. It's going to be really tough, but the, the retirement benefits are really great. Right? It's not that way. We're not promised an easy path. We're just promised that God's working it for our good. And so whatever God has in store for our future, whatever it proves to be, we can be sure that his plan is to make me less like Joel and more like Jesus. He's going to make me less of my natural self and more of my sanctified and redeemed self. And that operation involves saving and sanctifying judgments that are, that are guided by God's fatherly love. We are going to fall in death before this battle is finally over. Like none of us are going to live to see in this life the completion of our sanctification or the final victory of Christ over the world. I don't, I don't think, right? That uh, we're, we're going we're gonna to lie down in death and Jesus is still going to be carrying the gospel forward. But notice what Jesus says in Matthew 10, verse 28. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. In other words, fear God. If you fear God, you don't have to fear anyone or anything else. If you don't fear God, you have to fear everyone and everything else. But if you fear God, you don't have to fear death because even death has to obey its maker. So, that's the lesson tonight. We've said salvation by judgment is a pervasive theme throughout all of Scripture. It's an organizing principle in redemptive history, and it's a personal uh, principle for understanding our own experience of salvation and, and judgment, uh, salvation through judgment, salvation and sanctification. Salvation in Scripture never means escape from. It always means deliverance through and sanctification by means of into that fullness, into that peace, that shalom that God sets before us. And ultimately, we see this principle working through the judgment of Christ on the cross, the judgment of our own sinfulness in the sanctifying work of God's Spirit, and the final judgment of the world on the last day. So I hope that'll be some help to you. All right, let's bow together and pray, and then if you've got questions, we'll talk about it. Gracious God, we're thankful for the time together tonight. We're thankful for an opportunity to study your word. We do pray, Lord, that you would help us to see more uh, of what is there in Scripture, more of the ways in which you have worked in the lives of your people, more of the ways that you have worked for the blessing and uh, benefit of your children. Uh, we pray, Father, that you would give us a spirit and a heart uh, to accept your fatherly judgments in our own life, to accept 
uh, pain and difficulty, adversity that you call us unto, to bear with it knowing that you appoint it for uh, the greater good uh, of our souls and the greater glory of your name. Bless us now as we return to our homes, prepare our hearts for the Lord's day. Uh, Bless all those that we love, O God. Be with those who are in need, uh, who are sick, who are Uh, going through surgery, recovering from surgery, we pray that you would use those uh, sanctifying trials as well uh, for their uh, good. Bless us and keep us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.